Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello, and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I'm Kate Willett. I'm Julia Clare. Are you laughing because Albert is like going uh, off right now? Yeah, Albert is Kate's cat meowed immediately when we were supposed to do our <laughs> start our intro. We clapped to do our intro and he immediately meowed and it was funny. It was cute. He's he is absolutely out of control right now. Well, because it's like I just got back from tour and they are uh my cats when I come back from tour go through like a cycle of like first they ignore me, but then they become extremely clingy. Like mm. it's it's they give me the cold shoulder, but then they are like, actually, we love you. Please never <laughs> do this to us again. And uh, what if we're really good? Then will you not leave us? And it, I kind of relate because. I don't know. I just, there's, I, I just, I experience like a, a similar thing emotionally sometimes yes. in relationships. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, um, have you been? Week. I know. I, I haven't seen you. I know. Uh, I went to West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee on tour. It was, it was really cool. That is, well, yeah, we've already, we've always talked about our, our dream of, of moving to Appalachia and hosting the second most the popular. Appalachian leftist podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> strongly, strongly less popular, but, <laughs> but, um, no, it was, it was like, I don't know. I, it was, I mean, I'm glad I went there. Um, it was, I met some amazingly nice people and, uh, like all the people that I met who were younger and stuff, like people are a lot of leftists. Um, I mean, of course it was like probably in large part, like the people that I was hanging out with, but I don't know. One thing that's been really getting on my nerves lately is like this lib thing of being like, yeah, like everyone in a red state should, you know, die or whatever. And it's like, dude, do you, but aside from the fact that that's like immoral, like, do you know that there like are also a lot of people in all of those states that feel like very upset by yeah. the things that are happening, you know? Yeah. You know that I, I had this conversation with some people after, um, that, bill in texas passed and wasn't blocked by the supreme court um s what is it sb8 i don't the, remember that the names the, but the, 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 heart, yeah, the, the heartbeat, heartbeat abortion bill. bill yeah um people are like oh you know well they never wanted it anyways they never wanted a uh, legal abortion anyways i was like that's not true at all there have been people organizing in Texas for decades there are a lot of people who and also Texas is heavily gerrymandered yeah it's also like just because someone doesn't believe in abortion like does not mean anything about whether they're going to need an abortion exactly yeah uh, I mean as we can frustrating yeah it, it is very frustrating another thing that I was feeling like kind of weird about when I was there is just like you know, during like the the Trump era, like it's, you know, people were kind of like really slamming all these like um, 
you know, oh, coal miners or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like coal is a dying industry and it like fucking pollutes a lot. And, you know, like Trump's little promise to like bring back coal or something, like even aside from like <laughs> environmental restrictions, like it's it's just obsolete. But it feels like a very... I don't know. It it feels like liberals were way way too glib about it because like the amount of like decimation it's, it's from like that level of job loss was like crazy. Especially because coal companies really made it so that it was extremely difficult for like any other segment of the economy to develop in those heavy coal states. And I mean, they did that on purpose, you know, really like fought against like people even getting educations and stuff. And I mean, like it's really, it's, it's just misplaced anger. Yeah. Like, you know, to, to have that, these are people who, you know, have, uh, you know, for once have, have had steady union jobs for their whole, uh, for their whole lives. And now their industry is, is obsolete uh yeah it's not again it's uh you know don't hit the player hit the game yeah exactly <laughs> i mean it's exactly um yeah i mean it is just it, it is a weird thing like the way that i think uh i mean i guess everyone does this it's not just liberals but the way that people sort of like take out their hatred on these like sort of you know, imaginary figures that are like totally not worthy of any compassion whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that like, I mean, like obviously it's like extremely bad to like support Donald Trump or whatever. Of course, like it's, it's super immoral, but like, you know, I mean, could you tell someone to their face like, oh yeah, like your family deserves to starve, you know, because you like voted for this guy. I, that's to me a very sick attitude, you know. It absolutely is. I yeah, yeah. Um, I don't agree with it. I think it's a, it's uh, you know, as the kids say, it's a bad look. Yeah. For, for all parties involved, uh, but. Um, did we want to talk a little bit about, about what's going on this week? I know that we, Oh uh, yeah. So it's, it's lit. I mean, you know, (laughs) okay. I do think that there are some people maybe that are so bad that they don't deserve uh, anything. And Christian cinema could possibly be. You read, you read my mind. (laughs) I mean, she is bisexual. So, you know, (laughs) hell yes, queen. (laughs) Yes. Yes, talk, toxic queen. Yeah, a toxic bisexual queen. <laughs> yeah, you know I I relate, but yeah. Um, but so yeah, so you know, I mean, we're recording this on on Wednesday, and uh, basically, you know, there's like a huge uh, there's this huge reconciliation bill that has like a lot of the the things in. Biden's agenda, um, like almost everything climate related, like a, a bunch of uh, lower cost or in some cases free child care, probably going to end up being extremely means tested, free community college for two years. Um, what else does it have in there? Uh, oh, the expansion of... Test. Yeah, the the expansion of, of Medicare, uh, both mm-hmm. lowering the age and also including uh, dental and vision, vision. Um, a bunch which of new is, jobs which and clean is really big. Uh, yeah, and clean energy. 
Um, what, about, what else do we have in there? Um, yeah, making it so that uh, trying to uh, get uh, 80% of U.S. power from emissions-free sources before 2030. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. like, no climate scientist thinks that this is sufficient, but, I mean, it's got to do something, um, you know, improving VA hospitals. Um, there, there is some good, there's some good stuff in this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty spendy compared to like what I think, you know, the neolibs would have done in the past. Um, but you know, right now, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are saying that they're not going to vote for this bill, um, without like dramatic, spending cuts and so i don't know i think the most likely outcome is that they're gonna just way more heavily means test some of this shit but i'm not sure what do you think julia i don't know um i'm you know i remain pretty frustrated by uh the the leadership uh being unwilling to throw around their weight yeah, exactly. No, I mean, we saw that in the fucking Trump era that like, I mean, there's, you know, Joe Biden could go uh, cuck Joe Manchin on Twitter right now a lot. And he should. You know? <laughs> or or otherwise, you know, imposing other uh, political political punishments for both of them, those people. But uh, that, that doesn't seem to be something that he's willing to do. Bernie Sanders is definitely pushing for Joe Biden's agenda much, much harder than Joe Biden is. <laughs> It is funny that the people on that like the furthest left members of Congress and uh, and also a lot of just like people, you know, leftist people, are <laughs> the ones who are trying to support what Joe Biden wants to do more than all of the centrists, which Joe Biden is. Yeah. Um, like the people who have most vociferously defended him getting out of Afghanistan are leftists. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, when something is based, we can say it's based. We but, can say it. Yeah, we, but we it, it. it's very... I, I, a TBD what's going to happen, but um, last night there was a news that Bernie Sanders called um, the members of the congressional progressive caucus to tell them to not vote for the infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan until this larger $3.5 trillion bill is voted on first. Yeah. Um, So apparently that's going to happen tomorrow, but TBD, TBD, the way that that all shakes down. And then there's all that stuff going on with the debt ceiling. Uh, That's a big, you know, it's like the government is going to run out of money on October 18th. We've always we've seen this before a number yeah, of times. Yeah, it just happens all the time and it's like I just permanently I, I just, raise I it. Just permanently <laughs> raise it. This is so stupid. We go through this all the time. Uh, and then the government either shuts down or you know, they do this 11th hour witchcraft. Like just this is uh, absurd. I yeah, I don't know. I'm tired. <laughs> well, tell me about the interview this week. Oh, okay. I mean, I think you're going to really, I'm really excited about it. Uh, this week I interviewed the field coordinator for uh, Boston DSA, Evan George. And we talked about, uh, among other things, uh, the the gains that socialists have made uh, at the city council level in the last election. Um, and... 
you know, he, uh, he told me that Boston DSA endorsed um, 12 candidates and 11 of them won their primaries uh, for city council. And That's awesome. That's so yeah. much. It's really, it's really exciting. There's also some exciting policy happening at the mayoral race level, which we talked about a little bit last week. But, uh, yeah, we talked about. Kind of feel bad of- for the one person who didn't win. Well, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I mean, it sucks. Like you're, you, you got to still go to the after party and stuff. But like, I know that's you got to be like, bad. well, I tried my best. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, all right. Well, that's I, I can't wait to hear it. And uh, yeah, enjoy and, the show. Uh, please, uh, you know, give us a shout out on social media. If you could be so kind, please uh, subscribe to our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some very good content there for you. And we definitely deeply appreciate your five bucks if you are in position. Um, yeah. Thanks so much. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Uh, this is just Julia again. I'm sorry, everyone. I know that everyone, a lot of people come for Kate, uh, but you're just gonna have to deal with me. I will say that I wanted to have a more. Uh, I, I know that my my episode last week was pretty uh, pretty loosey goosey with uh, George Severus from Gawker, so I wanted to have a more um, kind of focused, in depth. Uh, episode this week, so I have enlisted the help of a of a new friend, um, who I just met on Twitter. Obviously, as we all do, uh, he is the uh, field coordinator for Boston DSA, and uh, we're so so excited to have him on the show. Evan George, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Julia. Very exciting. Wow. I mean, we're here. I I'm so excited. I uh, as as listeners will know, I do um, relish any chance to talk about Boston and uh, and Massachusetts. I love I love the Bay State. I'm just are are you from uh, Massachusetts originally? You sound like you are. I am. I grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Haverhill. Okay. Uh, and for those of you at home, it's spelled like Haverhill, but it's Haverhill. Um, Correct. And, That's what we're most known for. That yeah. and we used to make shoes in like the 50s. Yeah, a lot of cobblers. Um, well, yeah, I'm from uh, Medfield, Massachusetts myself. Um, and I, I've i been really excited about some of the, the recent developments that I've seen uh, in the news in Boston. Um you know, a lot of people are paying attention to the mayor's race because um, former mayor of Boston, Barty, Mar- Barty, <laughs> Marty Walsh, uh, Maddie, is uh, the secretary of labor. Um, of course, he was um, succeeded by what is her name? Acting Mayor Kim Janey from Kim District Janey. 7. Okay, okay, he's he's already running up, already, uh, already trying to stage a coup on my show. I will allow it. Um, but there was a fairly large uh, primary field uh, among Democrats in the 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 mayor's primary, and the person who won is Michelle Wu, 
who, correct me if I'm wrong, was like among the furthest left in the group. Yes, absolutely. One of the big, we'll say, contentions from the Boston preliminary race was, is Michelle the furthest left or is Andrea Campbell and Kim Janey, are they all just progressives? And mm-hmm. depending on how much you get into the weeds of the policy, th- there was really no debate about it from the beginning. M- Michelle Wu being the most progressive, a protege of Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. And what really excites me about Michelle Wu, I've, uh, you know, I- I've only kind of done some cursory reading on her, but some of the things that she's running on are pretty cool. Uh, and I think would make any socialists worth their salt uh, excited like fair free public transit which i don't know any mayor in of a major city who uh who has even kind of broached that topic and um a citywide green new deal that's pretty exciting and she is you know uh, she's running against a kind of uh centrist republican well yeah uh, so well, i mean y- I, mean, I guess this will be the one time, term, one time but... I will be fair to Anissa Sabi George in that she is a registered Democrat. She has done volunteer work or campaigning for the Democratic Party. However, make no mistake, like she is a Republican in all but name. Any number yeah. of her policies from policing to some housing issues that we can get into if you want a little bit more. Oh, dirt. I would love to because, um, of course, as she is, you know, she's running – She's running as a Republican, and she has uh, the support of basically every police union <laughs> in the state. Um, but yeah, and that's another thing that Michelle Wu uh, is is running on is a reinstatement of rent control. Yes, at the, at the city level. But I know that there is some there are some challenges with that because it kind of butts up against existing state law. Mm-hmm. Um, in 19, 1993, 1994, I always get that date wrong, uh, Massachusetts repealed rent control. And mm-hmm. what everyone, at least in, who lived in the cities that had rent control, agree in a very shady way in that they did it on a state ballot initiative. There are 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts, and I believe only three or four of them used rent control. In the areas that had it, they overwhelmingly voted to keep it. In the suburban towns that never had rent control to begin with, they all voted overwhelmingly against it. And so we have been blocked from even discussing it at a city or town level ongoing until this day. And that's something that Michelle Wu doesn't just say we should get to decide for ourselves. She very much champions the idea as part of like one of many different policies to try to get housing under control in Boston. We have the second most expensive market uh, after San Francisco. Mm hmm. I remember it well. I lived in uh, I lived in Cambridge before mm-hmm. I moved to New York, and um, yeah, basically the only way that I had an affordable apartment in Cambridge was that I had three roommates. My uh, it was a very old building. My all the floors were kind of on a slant. We didn't have a doorknob for like the first. There were there was like a two month period where we didn't have a front doorknob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and of course, what's funny is one of the biggest things that landlords will say is that, well, we can't have rent control because then we can't afford to fix up our properties. And mm-hmm. it's just like every renter knows you already don't fix up your properties now. Exactly. <laughs> and also, I I get into arguments uh, about rent control on Twitter very often. People mm-hmm. are always – and there are people who like search term rent control and just like – want to defend landlords (laughs) (laughs) 
on Twitter, the saddest people alive besides the people who want to defend billionaires. Um, but you know, the, a lot of the arguments about rent control just don't hold a lot of the arguments against it just don't hold water. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it is the perfect reply guy issue. If oh, you really, if you really want reply yes. guys, discuss housing policy and rent control on Twitter. 100%. Everyone in California will just hit you up, even if you're here on the East Coast. Uh, you, you know, so much housing. You know, the I got involved with DSA through the housing subcommittee here in New York. Um, housing has always been just like a really important issue for me. I think it's an important issue for everyone, but it's just something that is so it is just the base level of everything in our society. And one of the ideas that we need to like really re-examine, uh, not we as in you and me, just like at culturally is the idea of like market rate. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> as if that's, you know, the way that when I get into arguments on Twitter about this, um, people who are defending um, landlords or arguing against rent control act like market rate housing is just this kind of like inherent state or this neutral zone when in fact the market rate has been set by people and corporations buying up all the housing stock and creating scarcity. And I, I think I saw um, maybe a few days ago that for every one person who's currently homeless, there are roughly 28 just vacant units. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest issues that you get into on housing Twitter is that people view it on an econ 101 subject of, well, this must be a scarcity issue, that it's clearly supply and demand. We clearly just need to build more units and those units will that be filled. Is, that is every single time and, I just get some guy being like... <sighs> You don't get it. It's supply and demand. It's just economics. <laughs> like, and it, it's incredibly frustrating to have the same <laughs> argument over and over again. There was a, a report, I think just last year, that a former uh, Saudi prince, when Mohammed bin Salman, I guess I'll use the word cleansed and seized power, he came to Boston and just bought up eight luxury penthouses that are completely vacant, like yeah. just there as uh, nothing more than like a commodity of stock to like diversify his account. And that's so much of housing in major cities is it's literally just a manifestation of an empty Mm -hmm. glass tower and just hoping that real estate will increase and maybe you can sell it five to ten years it's a line on a budget sheet it's not housing exactly and pretty much the only you know and people talk about it like like a scarcity issue when obviously that's not the case and the only the only new housing that is being built are luxury condos Mm -hmm. which largely go vacant in New York City, even before the pandemic, there were 14,000 vacant apartments. Um, I And real estate money has such a chokehold over big cities like New York, you know, the San Francisco, L.A., and Boston, mm-hmm. um, that it's really so difficult to even get the most common sense housing uh legislation passed like or any sort of any sort of housing uh tax that would disproportionately affect the wealthy like a pied-a-terre tax a pied-a-terre tax is overwhelmingly popular in the state of new york and we can't even get it on the ballot uh because 
again, the real estate Rebney, the real estate board of New York has such an outsized uh, presence in the city and state legislature. Um, and I imagine that that's no different in Boston. Um, and also Boston has a pretty unique predicament in that because <laughs> that's a polite of, way of saying it. <laughs> mm, well, I mean, it's like a blessing and a curse. Uh, so many universities, um, mm -hmm. you know, we have a quarter of a million college students in Boston. Uh, and, you know, everyone jokes about Boston University, BU, as like a real estate company that dabbles in education. <laughs> no, it, and, and honestly, that is somewhat of a very accurate way to look at our larger universities. I mean, Harvard University, which even though that culturally people assigned it to Boston is actually in Cambridge, Harvard owns roughly one third of a neighborhood of Boston, also in Brighton. Mm -hmm. And when you have these massive universities, all of which because of their nonprofit status don't pay taxes into the city. They mm -hmm. have an agreement with the city called the pilot system, payment in lieu of taxation. And they say, ah. oh, and they say, okay, you know what? <laughs> uh, you're not going to tax us, even though Harvard, I believe, has a $43 billion endowment. You're not going to touch that money. We're going to let our students use your services. We're going to buy up your land for whatever we want. In return, we'll promise to give you some money. And every single year, they never meet that number. And mm -hmm. that made up number, those crumbs that they give us. And so one of the big issues that hopefully um, a future mayoral administration will be able to address. And I think this, again, because of how our constitution is written, we'll have to maybe go through the state house. We have what's called like a home rule uh, petitions is to get rid of that system. Or two, and there are measures America could take if you really want to use your power and put the screws to these universities and to simply say, we will not allow you to buy any new buildings. We will not allow you to continue mm. to expand unless you pay up. And right. up to this point in Boston's history, we have never had a mayor that is actually willing to use that power against developers, the larger universities. And we'll see, knock on wood, in a future uh, Wu administration. And this is mm -hmm. the one point of clarification I need to make before I get in trouble. Uh, Boston DSA, we've endorsed 12 city council candidates throughout Boston, Cambridge, Somerville, Medford. 11 have advanced the general election. Very exciting. We did not endorse in a Boston mayoral election. So while I've endorsed Michelle Wu, I'm very excited for her uh, mayoralship. Uh, Boston DSA as an entity uh, has not endorsed Michelle. Right. And I, I did, I, I did know that I, um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, and I do want to talk about those 11 candidates who mm -hmm. have advanced because that is what is so exciting to me. Um, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on to come, uh, talk to me today is because that's the city council is, a pretty deeply entrenched uh, institution, uh, kind of borderline immutable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I always thought about it. It's such a, you know, I worked in state government when I, I lived in Massachusetts. I, um, and so much of the state government, city and state government, is still such just like an old boys club. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Massachusetts, uh, we have the least competitive elections in the country, meaning incumbency is all but guaranteed a win. Most mm -hmm. people don't even bother challenging um, an incumbency because you'll be blacklisted. That was one of the reasons Ayanna Presley's campaign was so historic. Mm -hmm. uh, also, we have the least transparent state <laughs> legislature in the country where Hell they yeah. <laughs> commonly do not even record how our legislators vote. It's 
just taken for granted. You can't even mark down, did you vote yes or no on a piece of legislation? It's remarkable that we've made it this long as, as a I, democracy. So I didn't know that. So th- there are some bills that go through that are required that you write down who voted yes, who voted no. The vast majority do not meet that standard, meaning I cannot go to my state legislator and say, why did you vote yes on this? There is no record. There is no documentation of how your state legislators vote on all these issues. And most of them, of course, don't even make it to the House floor. Instead, they die in committee. Same thing. There is no record of how anyone voted in committee. It's all behind a black box. And one of the most frustrating things about being involved in politics in Massachusetts and particularly Boston is the people who show up to vote year after year are fine with it. Mm-hmm. We uh, This preliminary election from uh, the mayoral uh, race here in Boston, again, very historic, four women of color um, eyeing the seat. There was a fifth candidate, John Barros, um, a black man also in contention, but he was very much a marginal tier three character. So the press was very involved. Everyone was knocking doors. Our voter turnout went down compared to the last time we had this big of a field. And that in involves we had mail-in voting. Of course, here mm. in Boston, if you wanted to mail-in vote, you had to pay two postage stamps to use the actual ballot uh, process. City, uh, Boston City Council now said, we'll fix that next time. So we had a lot of advantages over the most uh, recent contested mail election, 2013, but the voter turnout went down. And really, like the big, most disheartening thing was the level of complacency or just non-engagement. And there's a lot of historical factors, as I'm sure you know, why people mm-hmm. just don't participate, particularly sure. in municipal elections. But it's incredibly frustrating to have to like move the needle uh, here in Boston, just using politics as usual. Yeah. It, that is, you know, the, I remember when Ayanna Presley uh, won her seat and it's 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 similar to the city council here in New York in that again it's one of those things it's just you don't usually just don't win or you're not even mm-hmm. you don't even have a chance if you are not from a per- a particular pedigree or you basically have to have the seat bequeathed to you in some way um so i think that and city councils can do a lot of and they do they they do have a, a pretty uh, wide swath of control of what they of what they can do um so that is really is, tell me about some of uh some of the candidates that Boston DSA endorsed that are are moving on up Absolutely. Uh, we'll start with Boston, and then we have some very exciting things, Cambridge, Medford, but particularly Somerville. So I definitely want to make sure we talk about Somerville. Um, so um, here in Boston, we endorsed uh, two candidates for the Boston City Council, Joel Richards in District 4 and Kendra Hicks in District 6. I realize those districts don't mean anything to your viewers, but basically Joel Richards uh, running for like Dorchester, Roslindale, Mattapan. Uh, the largest like historically be- uh, black, black neighborhoods of Boston, yeah. unfortunately had the lowest turnout um, in this election. That was a very wide field. Uh, I believe there was seven and nine candidates. Uh, he placed third behind uh, two candidates that one of them was a former state representative, had a lot of money, institutional support. The other just from a very large family. And uh, Joel recently moved to the area incredible performance that he did for someone who's new. But as we were discussing, for local politics, people vote really like, do I know you? Um, mm-hmm. did you what school did you go to? Who's your cousin? And so trying to break apart from family ties and neighborhood ties is incredibly uh, daunting because people don't vote on policy, as we know. 
truly working 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 in the state government in massachusetts they were like oh who's your father <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i mean it, it's it's remarkable marty walsh got as far as he did but that was all because his uncle was the president of a labor union his father mm-hmm. was a member of the union when marty was in his 20s he got in and then 2013 a wide open um i'm sorry in the 1990s he kind of just got a state legislature seat because everyone just knows the last name oh you're a walsh oh yeah oh and then he, yeah he hung around long enough, squeaked in the mayor's office, and now he's in D.C. I mean, he's not a very remarkable person if you've heard him talk, but it's just... No, he's not, and that's what's so <laughs> remarkable about him. No, that's true. Um, he he like, went far with little, but he went far with the last name. It's true. And also, I just think that just hearing someone with... <laughs> With that accent, with my dad's <laughs> accent, as the Secretary of Labor is for the country, is so funny to me. Did, did you do that video where you were pretending to be him? Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, I thought that was you. Yeah, that's me. You got a shotgun, three coffees, <laughs> the Irish goodbye. Yeah, um, that was, uh, yeah. I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't <laughs> believe that that our boy, our boy got, to, got all the way to Washington. But... I, I was heavily uh, betting against it, but uh, I got us off topic from um, somebody who we uh, we do have who's running, um, who made it out of the preliminary, and that's Kendra Hicks. Mm -hmm. And that district represents West Roxbury, which is the historically much whiter area, single-family housing. A lot of police, firefighters uh, grow up there. But then also Jamaica Plain, which is a Mm -hmm. very diverse area. And she is probably one of the most incredible candidates that I've ever seen. Um, she's the director of Resist, which is a nonprofit founded by Noam Chomsky. She's done a lot of work in racial advocacy and poverty advocacy. And she's just an incredible person. And she won our preliminary with over 1,000 votes. There's a lot of, again, entrenched power that doesn't want to see mm-hmm. um, a young black woman represent a part of West Roxbury, which, again, is where a lot of police officers have happened to live. So we are very encouraged about how that race is gone and the amazing things she'll do. I don't know if this is a historical fact. I'm going to say it anyway. She'd be the first open socialist on the Boston City Council probably a century. Mm-hmm. And especially if people are anticipating having Michelle Wu, who, you know, the Boston Herald is already trying to label as a crazy socialist, oh, having someone no. like Kendra there who can <laughs> stand there and be like, oh, no, no, I, I am a socialist. Like, let's talk about it because things are not going well in this city. Oh, um, not the Herald just taking <laughs> taking liberties. I don't believe it. Yeah. Honestly, though, I think they're salivating at the chance of having uh, four years to bash Michelle Wu. I think oh, Anissa Sabi George would be very boring for them. Of course, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. The Herald, yeah. I mean, the Herald is dying. They need something. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and and you mentioned before about the powers of city council. So Boston is a very mayoral centric city, mm-hmm. and historically, everyone's been fine with that on the city council. Like they sh- they all vote unanimously on everything. The mayor submits a budget. They all vote to pass it. It's not a big fight. It became a big fight during the George Floyd protests. When mm-hmm. people really wanted city, uh, our city councilors to vote against the police-friendly budget that Marty Walsh submitted and said, no, we need cuts. And that was really the first time, at least in my um, recent memory and probably historically, that the Boston City Council has been like, oh, we actually have power. Like, we, mm-hmm. could, we could reject this. And there is a ballot initiative to allow our city councilors to actually make changes to the budget. Because right now, they just have to vote yes or no. 
And just the prospect of having someone like Kendra with her lived experience, with everything that she knows around dealing with the real issues of Boston, because Boston is one of the most segregated uh, cities in the country. We have a 33-year life expectancy differential. If you're Mm -hmm. born poor black in Roxbury, your, I think, average life expectancy is in the high 50s. Compare that to two miles away in the back of Bay if you're born rich and white, so like in the uh, low 90s. It is a very, very uh, wealth disparity. The, the most common statistic is the average uh, white family in Boston has about a quarter of a million dollars in wealth. The average black family is $8 in wealth. Mm-hmm. And so having someone like Kendra who's able to actually center those issues and make sure that they she pulls along the other city councilors. Right. And, because if they can stand together as a block, and this is why Somerville is so exciting, they can actually really make sure that Michelle Wu um, makes do on a lot of her promises mm-hmm. that she's making to progressive groups. And we're going to need that. Absolutely. And, I mean, to to the point that both of us were making earlier, a long history of just rubber stamping the mayor's agenda mm-hmm. also comes from the fact that the demographics of city council have remained unchanged for so long. Mm-hmm. It's just been the same kind of people. So, of course, they're li- they'll are they just line up behind the mayor, business as usual. Um, so that is really exciting. Uh, we love to see it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Boston, I don't know if, if you've uh, listened to this, but definitely, um, particularly school segregation is something that we talk about a lot on this show as it relates to New York City because New York City has – some of, if not the most segregated public mm-hmm. schools in the country. Um, and B- Boston, obviously, is no stranger to school segregation. The desegregation of the Boston public schools is, like, obviously historic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I, I, I listened to Leon Nafok's series on uh, Fiasco about the desegregation of the Boston public schools, and it is uh, the, there's a lot of original audio and it's like pretty harrowing and mm-hmm. um, but it's also it's also crazy because it was in you know the lifetime of my of our parents um, yeah. and it still um, is in living memory still, of a lot of people and um, one of the bigger issues that is under conversation where it comes to education here in the city is should we bring back an elected school committee because mm-hmm. what started happening after the busing instances in the uh, early 1970s until it, it was about a 10 to 15 year process, uh, we got rid of the ability for the people of Boston to elect who's on the school committee. Mm-hmm. They sw- switched it to appointmentships, really just to make sure that the people who are getting appointed will never try anything like that again, any sort mm-hmm. of a desegregation effort. And now, just because, I don't know, people are starting to become a little bit awake to the issues. I mean, if you have the number one most racial segregated schools, we're not too far behind you. Our schools are incredibly segregated. We have, and I know you have this in New York as well, like these prestigious exam schools as a way of kind of like tearing out. So Mm -hmm. no, 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 you can still have a pathway so that the richer students who can have test prep, who can have all this additional training and go through a fantastic $20,000 a year preschool will just be so much better positioned to perform on a standardized testing. We'll get you in. Mm-hmm. And they just made changes to that. It was a brutal fight here in Boston to just allow maybe, maybe we'll take some kids from some different zip codes. It won't just be a hundred percent on the test. And we're heading in that mm-hmm. direction, but Boston, yeah, we, there's been a lot of that here as well. Mm-hmm. I know in, in Boston, the, you know, 
the crown jewel of the Boston public school system is Boston Latin, which yep. is um, the one of the exam schools, the high school. Uh, here in New York, we have Stuyvesant High School and Bronx Science um, are two two of the best high schools in the in the country. And, you know, a few years ago, the big report came out that, you know, uh, of, I think, a thousand students uh, who were going into Stuyvesant High School, only eight of them were black in a school system. The public school system here in New York is 70 percent black and brown. Um, so it's pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, the Boston, so even though maybe the most dramatic days of desegregation in the Boston public schools are behind us, the Boston public school, uh, that, that program to desegregate the Boston public schools kind of still lives on in Medco, Mm -hmm. um, which is a program that takes, uh, students from more traditionally disadvantaged neighborhoods in Boston uh, and puts them in better performing public schools. It's kind of, you have to sign up like before your kid is born. It's a very, um, really, it's a, it's it, a it, really arduous process mm-hmm. uh, and it almost feels like a lottery. It just feels very, it, it, it's, it's an attempt and it's, I'm glad that there is something I, you know, I have friends who went through Medco as I'm sure you do too. And, you know, obviously it's, it's a program that's not, that has many flaws. Um, but I'm, I would love to see something, something more. <laughs> <laughs> and and what makes that program uh, so unique is that, you, you know, the vivid memories of everyone's mind of desegregation, particularly in Boston, you know, you got the image of a uh, white man bayoneting somebody with the American flag. I'm sure everyone saw it in their textbooks mm-hmm. is what happens in the MECO program is that they take st- um, students from in the inner city and then they actually bust them out to a suburban wealthier mm-hmm. public school. Which, and I'm not even going to attempt the Supreme Court dates, but basically, the, I think it was like 1971. Oh, yeah, forced desegregation. 73. No, 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 not in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so what you saw in Boston was a massive flight out of the city for the wealthier families who got out of Boston because they didn't want their children growing up um, having to go to school next to black kids. They left. And you can still see this resentment of the people who left, of like they were forced to leave Boston because of this effort. And the people who stayed during that were the poorer, whiter populations, most notably of Southie. And so mm-hmm. you have this um, massive conflict between the poorer, whiter families who are being looked down upon by the wealthier, whiter families who left and feeling resentment mm-hmm. of like, you're calling me racist? You're the ones who left. Yeah. And so the primary uh, system of our desegregation was to switch um, bus kids from different neighborhoods within Boston. Mm-hmm. What the METCO program does, which is incredibly unique, I can't believe it actually lasted. It was, again, to take kids from the inner city to the suburbs. That's and as right. you said, it's incredibly difficult to get one of those seats. There's very few of them. You have to be willing to put your child on a bus for hours yeah. upon hours. But for the, a lot of families, it's worth it because of just the much different level of education and just really learning settings that the students find themselves in. And then also as somebody who did education research for a while, uh, somebody will then tell you, well, if you grew up in a household where your family prioritized education to that extent, was able to navigate the massive bureaucracy, chances are you have a different home environment as well and you're gonna be okay. 
But that still yeah. doesn't mean that it, it is fantastic proof about how much learning environments matter and why we need to improve schools and get rid of the school choice system that yes. every city uses as really a way of getting around forced segregation, which is really what school choice was designed to do when it was first exactly. initiated in the South. Exactly. And Metco, again, is not without its problems, but it is the sad part is, is that it is the oldest and most successful mm -hmm. desegregation uh, school desegregation program in the country <laughs> that isn't that wasn't um, Brown versus the Board of Education. That wasn't a Supreme Court ruling. It is the at the municipal level. It is the most successful desegregation program. Um, but yeah, as you said, initially, uh, they were just kind of rotating kids, uh, desegregating the different neighborhoods in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the one that everyone remembers is Roxbury, which is uh, historically, a historically black neighborhood, uh, very poor, uh, being combined with Southie public schools, Southie, also historically poor, but white, uh, mm -hmm. extremely white. And um, obviously, like a lot of violence and difficulties ensued. Um, but I, I am encouraged by as we just we just talked about all these. Obviously, every city has its own uh, kind of um, embarrassing, depressing history in its own way. New York is no exception, of course. Um, but I am really encouraged by a lot of what I see in Massachusetts. And I will say, you know, I'm, I'm the product of a Massachusetts public school education. Um, I am, so, you know, I, I have friends from all over the state of like very, of really varying, um, socioeconomic levels. And, you know, my, uh, one of my best friends, uh, grew up in Brockton, which is pretty, uh, pretty working class or, or, or lower. And she still got like an incredible education. It's not perfect, but Massachusetts does do a pretty good job of, um, education spending, um, and that that's something that I, I feel very proud of. Also, um, you know, my brother, this is completely anecdotal. My brother is uh, has type one diabetes. And for a long time, he was on mass health and he paid almost nothing for, <laughs> for his insulin, which, as we all know, has, you know, the price of insulin has increased something like 700 percent in the mm -hmm. past 15 years. Um so there are it's a it's it's darkness and light in in the base state um but yeah so i i, I want to talk more about um somerville in particular because that's a pretty uh, somerville is very uh it's an interesting city um when i worked for the state i worked with a lot of the um, city leaders in Somerville and they are a bunch of characters. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, but Somerville is, uh, for those of you who don't know, technically it's part of the greater Boston area. When people say Boston, 
they most of the time they are also including like Cambridge, Somerville, Brookline, um, Alston, Brighton, whatever. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about um, about the city council candidates in, in Somerville. No, absolutely. So the Somerville election, I don't know, cycle we'll call it, is having a massive turnover. Really, like the mayor decided he's leaving, so that left up everyone who was very on the Somerville City Council. It was like, well, we're all going to run for this position. So it opened up a lot of seats on the Somerville City Council. And Boston DSA, if you look at how many members we have, I think it's roughly, I'll throw out the number, 2,800. Now, that's not all condensed within the greater Boston area. There's a very large uh, mile distance which separates those people. But we have hundreds and hundreds of members in Somerville and Cambridge and Boston. And that got us thinking that, oh, we can actually really make an impact on this cycle. A lot of people, myself included, were running like the field game for the Bernie Sanders campaign before they made it here. So we already had somewhat of an operation. And Somerville and Cambridge, they're no strangers to Democratic Socialists running. They mm-hmm. elected uh, Mike Connolly to the Massachusetts State House years ago, who was a DSA member. They then elected J.T. Scott, then Ewan Camp into the Somerville City Council, again, open Democratic Socialists. And then most recently, Erica Idahoven, another DSA member. So these are areas where for years now, people have like seen the DSA logo. They are comfortable with Democratic Socialist candidates. They love Democratic Socialist candidates because yeah. of how much Mike and Erica, J.T. and Ben have championed and all these issues. And one of the, the nicknames we're calling the campaign is sidewalk socialism. Yeah. It's not, it's not just sitting down, like reading Karl Marx to people. It's, hey, you know what? The city should actually plow your sidewalks for you so that we don't have people slipping on ice. We should provide that service to you. And just talking to people about actual providing services, they're just like, oh my God, this is awesome. And, you know, yeah. Mike Connolly was. Um, and they're like, please don't read Marx to me. <laughs> That's Which, what I would you know say. What? I, I don't like reading Marx either. It's, I it, don't either. It, yeah, it's boring. N- n- no one does. I, I'd much rather so, figure out how we can pay to uh, plow everyone's sidewalks. I know. And which in Boston is. Yeah, that's a big deal. You can win a, a lot really of votes. That's a really big deal. That and get rid of the rats, which we actually have plans and policies for. Oh, get rid of the rats and plow. I mean, that's a winning message right there. Plow the Absolutely. sidewalks and get rid of the rats. Let's do it. But and yeah, so, there's there's also, there's nowhere, I mean, bo- there's nowhere for the snow to go in Boston. That's a big, that's a big problem. It piles up so easily. It does. Um, our our campaign in Somerville is to push the, the snow to Cambridge, and our campaign yeah. in Cambridge is to push the snow back That's to That's so smart. Yeah, I there love we go. that. We're, we're playing both sides. And so we are running three candidates for the at-large positions, which I'm not sure if the New York City Council has something equivalent to that. I don't do that, which is basically they ca- they cover the entire uh, territory of the city. And then there are other seats that are broken up into smaller chunks, wards yeah. within the city. Yeah, they do have that. So uh, we're running Eve Sidecheck, Charlotte Kelly, Willie Burnley Jr. They're running as like a slate together. And then from the ward levels, we still have J.T. Scott, we still have Ben Ewan Campen, and then we're adding to that Becca Miller and Tessa Bridge. And so that's seven. Yeah. Seven candidates get you a majority on the city council. And if you have a majority of people who are democratic socialists, who are used to the type of organizing that we want mm-hmm. in a very Bernie Sanders style, growing the working class, using the platform of the office to connect to people who have just been completely alienated and removed. It's one of the major reasons we have such low voter participation is mm-hmm. these people don't expect services from their government. And so if you have them, people who actually know how to use power, 
who say, oh, you know, as a majority of the city council, we can decide as a uh, funnel, like we want to make sure that the things that pass through this body are actually going to help. And we're not just going to allow people to just sit there on their position. So it's incredibly exciting. And again, these are policies and issues that the people of Somerville have been voting for for years now through um, Mike Connolly and Erica and others. And so, yeah, we are very excited to see all these people working together and then really making sure that Somerville heads in the right direction. It is the densest city in Massachusetts. Mm. Housing is, of course, it's everyone's biggest issue in every city, especially that in in Somerville. So we are incredibly excited. um, And we have about five weeks left. And if your listeners would like to uh, get plugged in, I will make sure to do some asks at the end of this episode. Absolutely. Well, yeah, there will be time for that. And we'll also put uh, links to... uh, to all of these candidates in the show notes. Um, yeah, it's so exciting. Somerville, I when I worked for the state government in Massachusetts, uh, we dealt a lot with school enrollments and um, enrollment projections for anywhere that was not the greater Boston area were plummeting and the greater Boston area just exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only, I mean, this is what I'm saying, like, Housing is so intertwined with everything else. Not only are we going to need more housing, we're going to need um, solutions for schools to accommodate uh, all the students who are coming along with those families. So really exciting. I do remember, uh, yeah, they do the, does Somerville have an interim mayor right now? It's because Joseph Curtitoni was... Uh, he basically said he's, he's not running. Yeah. Um, he, he, I believe he's still hanging out, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, guy was, that guy was really something. <laughs> A lot of people were um, suspecting that he was going to make his announcement to run for governor, and it's possible. Oh. He, he looked at the field and just thought, ah, you know what, maybe not. So Massachusetts, like so many of the New England states, has a Republican governor, which is very funny. <laughs> I don't know why that is. It's like Vermont, Maine, and Maine doesn't anymore, but they they long time had a, a Republican governor in LePage. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think New Hampshire is basically Republican. Sorry. I, I, I went to school there. I, uh, <laughs> there's so many guns. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, that is mostly, and you know, it's a little bit, the designations of Democrat versus Republican are like different. A little bit in New England, Maine, yeah, definitely not. I like, think so. Like th- that is very much like a Trump is what they mean by Republican. Like here yeah. in Massachusetts, Charlie Baker would get laughed out of the room if you tried to run in any national oh office in the Republican yeah, Party. Yeah, that's true. And, and that is not to say that he's not horrific. Like he is oh, one yeah. of them. He's. I think he made his money in like the private insurance industry, mm-hmm. like from um, medical. And so, not at all somebody who is will say on the team or views things. But he no. is very much. A moderate within the Republican Party, which is right. still saying something, right? Um, but yeah, it's it's very it's very funny that we've had the the history that we have in Massachusetts with Republican governors. Uh, <laughs> yep, Mitt Romney, Mitt Baker. Romney. <laughs> uh, I mean. Mitt Romney is kind of proof that because Mitt Romney did get laughed out of the room of the Republican Party. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, not now for sure. But yeah, he, he's um, having fun in Utah. He had, oh he had to leave God. us. You know, we're just not free enough. Uh, that's what no. it was. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so that's very, I, I remember, you know, I, again, I lived in Cambridge for, for a while and definitely even in like, you know, 2014, 2015, it was no, there were no stranger to like open conversations about socialism in Cambridge. You know, the nickname that people use is the People's Republic of Cambridge. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely, I think there are a lot of factors that really allow the political ascendancy of something like socialism in uh, in the greater Boston area, not just because of the density of students, which I do think helps, mm-hmm. and um, the level of education of the, the people, but also because Boston is at its core a working class <laughs> town, even though it's so expensive. Uh, obviously, like, you know, Back Bay is very expensive. There are a lot of like ritzy neighborhoods and things like that. But the people who run, who like keep the city afloat are working class people that are just trying to get by. Um, many of whom are being priced out. Absolutely. Uh, of those areas. And yeah. we will certainly carry still like a working class affect. I mean, we have like Ben Affleck, Matt Damon. Right. Uh, our our heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the Wahlbergs <laughs> kind of continue to represent us very well. Oh, and like, God. I love it. I love the image. But, but it, it you is. You know, if, if Mark Wahlberg had been, had been there on 9-11. Exactly. It, 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 it would not have went day. down that way. That's not how we do it in Boston. <laughs> But it it is very slowly and there's a lot of massive developments coming this way to try to turn it a lot more into like the Kenmore Square area, which is Mm. very much biotech. It's the only thing right now because a lot of people are like wary about increasing office space because, you know, God knows what working working from home is going to look like. And so we actually have a lot of office buildings that we're hoping under a Wu administration Maybe uh, a progressive city council will actually say, hey, we have all these empty buildings. Let's do something mm-hmm. with it. People keep talking about a housing crisis. Let's do something. Uh, we have a massive um, crisis right now. It's referred to as Mass and Cass, uh, the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and um, Cass uh, Boulevard, where it's where a lot of the methadone clinics are located. And it's mm-hmm. where some and now most of them are gone, the city services. And so we actually are having a tent city build up around Boston. And that is one of the major issues here in the mayoral race is what to do with it. There was a nonprofit that said, hey, you have all these empty buildings. We'll run a, a housing facility, provide people mm-hmm. with housing, provide them with treatment if they seek it. And the neighborhoods in that area turned it down because they- Because would, of course- because so, of course they did. It's a, mm-hmm. it's it's nimbyism. It's yeah, and it, there's uh, an empty jailhouse close by there, and so our local sheriff and said, "Hey, well, let's actually um, give them forced treatment. Let's use the jail rather than the housing." <laughs> and that goes over a lot, much better with a lot of our representatives and uh, people within the community who really just want to wake up, go for a walk, and if all those people are gone, maybe there's like a little blood on the pavement. They don't ask any questions. Just get exactly. it out of my sight. And unfortunately, though, we know that that is does not work. And that is a, another big issue that separates uh, Michelle from Anissa. Anissa very much against safe injection sites, Michelle for them. And it's, it's going to be, again, a big fight within Boston is are we going to continue to allow it to be bought up by developers 
adding lab space, again, just like these biotech facilities being a lot more of an intellectual hub. We have Amazon buying up more and more areas, trying to secure territory. Facebook just... Yep. Or or that working class element of people that, again, we're more known for culturally and haven't historically. We do have a lot of construction unions. Unfortunately, they are right now saying, you want to build a luxury lab hotel boutique for Jeff Bezos? Yeah, we'll build it. Just give us the jobs. And that was the deal that Marty Walsh made as like a, a union rep himself was build whatever you want, but make sure you use union construction. And for a lot of the construction unions in Boston, that was good enough. But I think people are starting to say, oh, my God, we just spent 10 years building luxury skyscrapers. No one can afford to live here right now. We're the second most at risk after Miami for global sea level rise. We need to do something different. And Michelle does at least articulate that vision. And let's see if she'll be willing to fight the forces against it. Yeah. I mean, even something, again, something like a citywide Green New Deal, um, for the the presumed front runner is mm-hmm. really exciting um and she does have you know she does have the credibility and the bona fides i think to um to put some muscle behind it um but yeah you you know you're exactly right um i used again in in cambridge kendall square has a lot of uh the big biotech companies are there but it didn't i you know i grew up going to the kendall square cinema kendall square was a a dead zone it was (laughs) there it was housing mostly it was like a pretty quiet and residential and now it looks like a mall (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's soulless is is yeah, the term that a lot of people use for that area. It really we just is. constructed uh, this uh, entirely new neighborhood of Boston called the Seaport. Ugh, that, oh, I fucking hate the which, Seaport. Which is not a single politician can you find that says that was a good idea. And a lot of it has to do with how we do housing here in Boston, which is basically we have an opaque agency completely detached from any de- democratic accountability mm-hmm. that secures their own funding so that they don't even need to go to city hall for money and they get to decide what gets built and what doesn't and more often than not it's going to be a luxury empty tower with no planning and afterwards like oh wait don't we need like a supermarket isn't there going to be like seven thousand people in this neighborhood oh you know we should have thought of that 2016 they said oh you know what we just read this report about climate change not a single one of those buildings that they allowed had any of the recommendations about what to do it's right on the coast 2016, they're just like, yeah, you know, we read the report. We wish that we thought about climate change. We, we just, not only did they then said, oh, like, you know, we just didn't know. They then continued to allow those same buildings afterwards. So even if we buy, you just learned about climate change in 2016, you're still allowing the same things without an overall plan, without any sort of fo- focus. And that's how we do housing in the city. And it's incredible. That it's very similar to Hudson Yards here in New York, um, another kind of uh, dystopian, disastrous um, luxury project um, with a lot of vacant housing now, a lot of vacant luxury condos. But yeah, I actually remember I because I worked in Kendall Square uh, for a little while. And it was still kind of being built up. This was in 2014. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, things were there. Some of the biotech companies had already moved in. And there were restaurants there, but nothing else. It was like restaurants, these biotech companies. Clearly, more people were moving into the neighborhood. As you said, no grocery store, no pharmacy. Like, <laughs> it was 
so uh yeah it's and i wish I wish I could say that this was unique to Boston, but it's not. It's every kind of every major city in the U S is going through something like this as well. And this is what happens when housing is treated solely as a commodity, um, and not a human right. (laughs) And For decades, we just haven't been comfortable using that vocabulary, which Mm -hmm. is why if everyone agrees that government is bad, if everyone agrees that public housing is bad, and then the only alternative is market housing. And just for decades, Mm -hmm. that's been the only issue. You can champion public housing, but you'd get laughed out of the room. And it really wasn't until maybe five years ago that people started to talk. You know what? Like housing is a commodity. That's actually Mm -hmm. not a good system to provide housing. It needs to be treated as what it is, which is a basic necessity. And again, to Michelle's credit, she does like label that as we need to decommodify housing. And so just to have a candidate That's say huge. that. It, That's it is huge. huge because it, it, it hits people <laughs> from an angle. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because, again, for this last election, four out of five voters stayed home. The people who went to the polls actually are very invested in housing being a commodity because that's where all their wealth is. They, 100%. They, they need that to be their bottom line. And so like we are like fighting against a lot of the only people who are active, their self-interest views it as like, hey, like F you, like housing mm-hmm. is my commodity. It's the only re- way I'm going to be able to give some money to my kids. Mm-hmm. And fighting against that is incredibly difficult. Yes. Uh, any, any sort of leg- municipal legislative fight um, involving housing is always a huge uphill battle just because the real estate industry is flush with cash. Mm-hmm. So it's huge. And they, they just have, they have a lock on, on so many politicians and that, yeah, again, that's in every major city. Um, yeah, my brother lives in San Francisco. I, uh, every, Every time he tells me anything about the housing market there, I want to cry. Uh, (laughs) And I don't know how anyone, I don't know how anyone who isn't a millionaire lives in San Francisco. And increasingly that is how Boston is becoming Mm -hmm. as well. Certain like, our housing market is second behind them in terms of cost. I think the, Average price right now of a condo is three quarters of a million dollars. Mm-hmm. So like the illusion of home ownership within the city is it's just not there. And, and every mm-hmm. candidate will run on we need to increase pathways to home ownership for first generation buyers because you're appealing to that dream that was instilled in mm-hmm. us decades ago. The American dream, buy your own home. Well, like, a, you know, a lot of that was a grift um, to <laughs> try to get people to just, again, to invest in like a suburban economy. And for some people, they lucked out and for many others, they didn't. Uh, the average price of rents here is, I think, $2,000, maybe more for a single uh, one-bedroom apartment. And it's just it's not feasible. Like most people like myself, um, I'm a state employee. I have a master's degree. I live with three people I met on Craigslist. Like th- there's no other way of living. Hell yeah. And say, oh, which I love. And I mean, we do need to talk about communal housing as the only actual real solution uh, to a lot of major cities in terms of housing, which I'm more than fine with. I actually think it's good. I think the, the suburban mindset of living by yourself on a little postage stamp drove an entire generation insane. And we're all still living with the consequences of that. But That's so true. I was also once a state employee living with three roommates. Um, 
and I hope to get back there again soon. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> Come and join us. I'll, I'll kick one of these I'm guys out. I'm moving in. <laughs> um, going back to, again, what politicians are comfortable saying in relation to housing, um, public housing was something that you would only say like sotto voce maybe. Um, but a lot of talk would be about like maybe affordable housing, but affordable housing is different than public housing because it's again set by the market. So this is my favorite topic. Affordable (laughs) for somewhere like Boston or San Francisco is still not affordable for most people. And so here in Boston right now, if you want to build, I think it's above 10 units, you then have to provide 13% of that, which I know for 10 units doesn't make sense, but everyone go with it. Uh, 13% needs to be at affordable limits. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm also part of a housing um, organization here in Dorchester called Dorchester Office Sale. And we show up to these meetings and we explain when they say affordable, they don't mean what you think it means. Mm -hmm. When they say area median income. They don't. That doesn't mean the area medium income of Dorchester. It all these rates are set by HUD at the federal level, and they take a hundred cities, some of which aren't even in Massachusetts, and they draw a big bubble, and then they say the average median income of this bubble, which for the location we're in is over one hundred thousand dollars. I think it's one hundred and five, but let's just make the math easy. One hundred thousand dollars is the area median income. The actual area median income of Dorchester is closer to thirty-seven thousand. Mm-hmm. And so that 13% is, they call it 70% AMI, 80% AMI. That means the cheapest affordable units are going to be for people that make 70000 80000 mm-hmm. 90000 Those are the cheapest. That's not mm-hmm. even market rate housing, which right. again, when the actual area median income is $37,000, you're already double, triple what the average person in this neighborhood makes. Mm-hmm. And it's insane. And I think just recently, the city council has been given the power to play with that 13%. It's called uh, IDP policy, um, inclusionary development policy. And so they're now saying, okay, we're going to bump that to 20. Well, all of the larger real estate and developers have already agreed we'll accept 20. We did another second major neighborhood of Boston called the Seap, I'm sorry, not the Seaport, Suffolk Downs. A Texas billionaire, like around our age, bought an entire new neighborhood and agreed with, oh, I'll give you 20 of that AMI. So th- that's already baked into the cake. And so we're really hoping to push them towards a lot more. Ideally, there's an organization here that wants 33% at the actual levels. I, I, right. I want it to shoot higher. But 33% truly affordable. Then you can have another one-third at that 70, 80, 90 for mm-hmm. middle-income families, uh, dual-income families, and then go play with the other third. I think that's being way too generous and that we it need is. to ask for yeah. a lot more up front. But, but I much mean, better. That would be, yeah, that would be so much better. Like the fact that that is – it's not enough, but it would mm-hmm. be such a drastic improvement of the current situation is shows how kind of dire – uh things are in in housing um and i know um that that 13 percent is also in suburban areas in massachusetts as well if you have um a new housing development come into a town like the one that i grew up in 13 percent of it has to be affordable again you run into the same issues and also a lot of suburbs which are predominantly white predominant like not all of them are affluent but there are certainly a lot of suburbs in the greater boston area that are affluent um 
fight that affordable percentage tooth and nail, which is so... It's absolutely racially motivated because of some, like, you know, boogeyman idea that they have about who is moving into affordable housing. But as we've just discussed, the people who are moving into affordable housing in a place like housing that would be considered affordable in, like, Wellesley, (laughs) which is an extremely wealthy town, are still going to be pretty wealthy people. So... And so actually, so this was just in the news. Uh, currently, Charlie Baker, our governor, he lives in Swampscott, which is a Swampscott. Swampscott, which is a fun, fun city of town to say. And the one thing he's been pushing for a few years now is to try to lower the threshold. So a city um, who wants to allow Chapter 40B housing, which is what, what we're talking about, I think they have to meet a, it might be actually 20% quote unquote affordable. And then you get to get, go around a lot of zoning regulations, mm-hmm. trying to lower that threshold, a city council vote goes from two thirds to 50%. So maybe you, you have a better likelihood chance of passing. There is a developer who wants to build 120 units in Swampscott, uh, mixed income. The entire town is rallying against it. No, like no one wants it, and it's one of the many reasons why like some housing needs to be taken out of local control. Mm-hmm. And I I agree with your sentiment that part of it is absolutely just purely racially motivated. A lot of it is also the fears of how will this affect my property value. Yes, because because even if even if we can convince them that the people moving in are going to make making seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, they still know that their children will be using city services. They'll be going to the city schools, the playgrounds, the parks. They know though that if they allow single family zoning, you must buy two acres. All these little restrictions. The only people moving in are going to be private school kids. You're not mm-hmm. going. To, we get to get your tax dollars, and you don't use our services. And so it is just. Everyone is afraid right now so much. And part of it has to do with that suburban mindset that you've been locked in a little bubble watching local new, uh, news or national news. I don't care if it's MSNBC, CNN, or Fox. And when they hear a new development of all these new people, they're just terrified. It's you're either going to bring populations they don't want or you're going to affect my bottom line. And this is all I have. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so difficult to break through that. And there's also this mindset that I don't think I was able to fully articulate until I had um, about 100 shouty conversations with my dad on the phone. Um, But there is this particular mindset among a certain generation, I think, of people who had some sort of social mobility and made it like, you know, my dad grew up poor and he's middle class now. And there is this kind of weird mindset of like pulling up the ladder behind you. Mm -hmm. Like I did it. I got, but I don't, but if I got lucky, like I don't necessarily want anyone else to get lucky or I don't want, or if like some, even if, I mean, the idea of like, quote unquote, affordable housing or whatever is like someone's going to have a slightly easier time than you did or you got lucky and that person is now going to have like some sort of built in perceived advantage and you don't want that Um, there. I think that is like a pretty suburban mindset as well. And again, it is like I think it's a particular mindset of like white boomers. And I think part of it is really based in insecurity because yeah, while it's fear. Yeah. Yeah. And while there are some people who absolutely pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and became successful, I think a lot of people who made that uh, level of wealth, like pe- people like uh, my family who were, I mean, you know, my dad barely graduated high school, just instantly uh, right out the door, gets a very well paying job, 
Um, wife doesn't have to work. Um, acre of land, beautiful house, two cars. And I think for that generation, there is a level of insecurity and knowledge that things were were easier, but yeah. they can't. But but, but they, they can't accept that because yeah. like, how dare you make me feel like this isn't my right that I didn't work hard? And you know, even if you did work hard, that's okay. A lot of people work hard in life, but they are so afraid that it'll actually get rid of their own internal self worth of what they've been able to achieve, and they just can't let that go. I it's so. It's so interesting. The whole reason why I had this, I ended up having this conversation with my dad was because I was talking about how unaffordable uh, the town where I grew up has become, um, how the housing prices have just gone up, 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 and it has like it's a very good school district. But when my parents moved in, it was not like that yet. So my parents moved there thirty years ago uh, for. They wouldn't be able – basically, my parents would not be able to buy there today mm-hmm. if uh, – in the same market at all. And I say – you know, I said to my dad, I said, doesn't it make you upset that kids like Brian, my brother and me, won't be able to, like, have a great education? Like, won't be able to go go through, like, a great public school education like like we did, like – people from our same socioeconomic background won't be able to do that. It's only going to be for like really rich kids. That doesn't upset you. Like people like Brian and me never would have been able to go there. And he was like, no, it do- he was like, it doesn't upset me. He was like, you guys got to go and that's good. <laughs> yeah. And that is like, I was like, you are a fucking monster. I, but I, I think that that is like, again, a particular kind of like white boomer mindset of like, well, I got lucky and um, I helped my family and we were able to do this. And, you know, if, if if it's not fair for people anymore, well, too bad. Yeah. And that's that's decades of just like detaching us from community again, mm-hmm. which I, I blame in, in large part to the suburbs. But it's like, no, no, you are an individual. You are not part of a society or group. You're an individual. So even if most people can agree that, hey, we got a little bit lucky, worked a little bit hard, we lucked out, we're on the boat. And, and that's mm-hmm. it, because why do we have an obligation to one another? And we're, we're almost kind of seeing that play out in real time with the pandemic, mm-hmm. where you just have so many people who are just like, what do you mean I have to wear a piece of cloth exactly. over my bed exactly. to make me uncomfortable? Like, that's not the bargain. Like, this is all, we're all out for ourselves. That's what we've been told for decades. And mm-hmm. But now you actually need people to work together to collaborate, to recognize what you um, just need to provide to other people. A third of the country, 40% just can't do it. It's just not psychically able to connect. Exactly. It's, you know, the atomization of the country and the way that people think about themselves in relation to their their neighbors and who they think their neighbors even are has been such a, a long time coming. But yeah, you're exactly right. The, I mean, it's just the pandemic has really been the ultimate proof of the complete erosion of the social contract um, because people just don't think that they people don't think of themselves as part of a community for the most part. Um, And largely the really popular, you know, a lot of a lot of cities that are pretty population dense are do have high uh, rates of vaccination because I, I think there is something to that. I think there is something about living on top of each other and like having to, you know, see your neighbors every single day um, that is affecting. And you, you do think of, 
I don't know, or you should be thinking about the consequences of your own actions as they relate to someone else. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, think know. of the experience of riding on the subway in uh, New York or Boston. Oh, yeah. Like you all instantly have to learn like, okay, the only way we can all get through this miserable experience together is if we all just follow rules to like of how we're going to navigate and interact mm-hmm. with one another. And that's how we're going to make it through. And everyone subconsciously all hands in, we're going to make it through this. And I, we, I, we, I agree with that. We hate it. We hate it. We hate yeah. it. We hate every minute of it, but we suck it up and we deal with it. Yeah. I, you know, I lived off the red line uh, in, in Cambridge for a long time. And in the winter, sometimes with the tea running really erratically on the way to work, be like three or four people deep in, <laughs> in line just to get on the train. And we all just deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, wow. Well, I, we have reached past an hour here. (laughs) I could talk about Massachusetts for the rest of my life and I probably will. Um, but before we get to plugs, um, for, for different places that people can go to help out, are there any other candidates or people you want to spotlight in the greater Boston area doing good work that we can be, uh, you know, that we can be hopeful about yeah uh so over in cambridge we have uh two currently sitting members of the cambridge city council uh jeevan sabrina wheeler and quinter uh, zondervan that have also um open socialists got our endorsements again they're incumbents they're incredible cambridge uses a very obscure rank choice voting method and i know mm-hmm. you in new york you just went through rank choice voting they use a much even worse version of it and so it's really ha- confusing it's very confusing to the point where who you vote number two doesn't really matter. All that really matters is how you vote number one. And it's a little bit of a luck of the draw. But I highly encourage you, if you live in Cambridge, I want you to look at Jeevan, look at Quinton. They're nearly identical on policy. Put one number two, one number one, the other number two. And then (laughs) um, over in uh, Medford, we have another endorsed candidate, uh, Zach Bears, who's another incumbent. And so a lot of great opportunities if you live in the greater Boston area outside of the Somerville candidates and the Boston uh, candidate that we mentioned uh, to get plugged in to help people out. Great. And um, well, Evan, this has been so this has been so great. Before you go, um, is there anywhere that you would like to plug for people to kind of uh, support what's going on uh, and the the candidates that are running uh who are endorsed by Boston DSA or any sort of organizations that you you think are uh, worthy of a few dollars? Absolutely. Um, I'll do the quicker plugs. This is basically all I do for Boston DSA. But if you live in Boston, if you want to help actually make change in our area, you need to be involved in local politics. Uh, Julie and I have tried to make it sound a little bit funner and exciting. Ignore the noise of the national politics. It's it will give you nothing but a headache on uh, Twitter. It's Get involved true. locally. Uh, it's true, one hundred percent. I mean, unless you want to keep talking about AOC's dress, and then and then you can have fun with that. But and if then you, actually, you can, and God yeah. bless. And, and, and but if if you actually want to um, do some good, make some change, you have to start at the local level. And so we have five weekends left until November second, the general election. And especially if you're listening to this and you're new to this um, area, we didn't get to this point, but you have. I think 15 days left to register to vote here in Massachusetts. We purposely make it hard for new renters, for students to come in. It's how we actually arrange our preliminary schedules to block you all out. And so mm-hmm. as an FU to them, make sure you register to vote. 
and then support these candidates. If you want to come out in person, we have canvases constantly every weekend here in Boston for Kendra. There's a great march that's going to take place throughout Roxbury this Sunday. And then also opportunities in Somerville, Cambridge, and Medford. And the URL is a little bit too long, but um, maybe I'll send it to you, Julie, if people want to look into yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, if you're one of our uh, further out uh, national uh, listeners, thank you so much. I hope you learned something about Boston and Massachusetts today. Uh, we have a dialer uh, that will be able to phone bank candidate uh, voters that we're just not able to hit. Somebody who lives on the top of a triple decker, the buzz is broken. We just can't get them on the door. So we'll be calling them every Thursday, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Even if you've never done it before, I can train you. It's fun. You get to talk to real life people. It's amazing. And I besides, love phone banking. <laughs> it's fun. Um, like, cause every now and then you will actually have a good conversation. That makes it's it true. Work. And people, you know, if you're afraid, you've heard like, I hate talking on the phone. Well, guess what, babe? Good news. Most people don't pick up anyways. <laughs> yeah. Most people won't pick up anyway. Uh, that's why we use a dialer. It autom- uh, automatically calls for us. Uh, you, you can use a fake name. You can have an accent if you want. Just uh, have fun with it. Yeah, exactly. Have fun with it. You ring the bell whenever you get um, a one or a two. It's a fun experience. <laughs> but besides that, if you're listening uh, to this and electoralism isn't for you, if you think I'm a Democratic shill and a sellout for being involved in electoralism, that is fine. But you have to be doing something. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot sit on the sidelines and being on Twitter uh, does not count as actual activism. And so there's a lot of great housing groups here in Boston that don't do anything. Um, involving elections. They don't make endorsements. Uh, groups like City Life, Eater Urbana, uh, groups like Dorchester and Office Sale. Housing is the key issue of, of every city, but most certainly Boston. And so look into those groups and get involved in any way. Man, this has been so great. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. Go Sox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, it's funny. They're on right now. It's actually a very important race. I was going to have them on in the corner. I was like, oh, I don't want to do that to Julia. We'll see if the Sox wow, make the wild card. Honestly- that is the nicest thing that anyone, any Red Sox fan could ever do is not have the Sox game no, playing I, in the corner. Yeah, my I've, been, dad, I've been angry with them all my season. My dad wouldn't, wouldn't um, do that. Tom Brady's um, coming back this Sunday. That's oh exciting. Oh, God. I'm not uh, a Pats but, fan, but. Well, I, then you'll, you can cheer for Tom Brady to, I, to beat know, the but, Patriots 54-2. Well, 54 I'm not an two. NFL fan is, is the, the oh, issue, okay. but. Anyways, uh, that's really neither here nor there. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for, uh, for for sharing so much of your time with me and so much of your knowledge. I'm, and thank you for all the work that you do. Um, I'm definitely going to check out Dorchester now for sale because I've never heard of it before. It sounds like an amazing organization and, uh, we will have links to all of, uh, the organizations and candidates that Evan mentioned, uh, in the description. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Julia. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to reply guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As 
went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land, land is mine. 